Hi. After a brief hiatus, I was up in New York for two weeks. Richard Baytalk is back. Thank you so much for joining me, as well as Albert Reynoso, who is uh, the producer. Good to be back. Yes, it's good to be back. I know, Albert, you do not follow politics. So yeah, you ha- no. you didn't see the Herschel Walker, Reverend Warnock debate, right? Well, I, I'm on a politics hiatus right now because it's crazy. <laughs> but you know, I follow I follow politics and news, but it's just been too much for me. No, I I don't really know much about the Walker thing. All right. Well, yeah, I have to say that Herschel Walker has inspired me. You remember that during the debate, um, he pulled out his his badge, right? We have that. That I that I heard. Yes, uh, I can get that picture for you now. And during the uh, there he is, uh, officer, officer Herschel Walker. You know, uh, he told uh, soldiers at uh, uh, an army camp that he was uh, an FBI agent. Uh, of course, that's not true. He also said on the campaign trail many times that he was a member of law enforcement, and that's not true. Uh, but he did pull out the badge, which he has now said, I picked it up somewhere in Georgia. Um, but I have been inspired because this is something almost nobody knows. And I am a law enforcement agent too. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, I sent an application in to the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. You may remember it as the man from UNCLE. And they sent me an official badge, just like Herschel Walker, and a membership card, the UNCLE. So I I am a law enforcement agent too, the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement, which I, I think is, uh, you know, a, a, an organization for law enforcement that's as prestigious as as the one Herschel Walker represents. Um, now, he he said he was an FBI agent. He said he was a, uh, uh, yeah, a law enforcement agent all these different times. And uh, they had this debate. And uh, I mean... There are there are so many things. This guy has admitted that he has twelve different personalities with something called uh, associative personality disorder, which is what Sybil had. The Three Faces of Eve are movies that covered this. That are sometimes you'll see serial killers, and um, you know they they dress up as women. They think they're women. They think they're children. They think they're Oh, there was one movie that was just really incredible where the guy had about 10 different personalities. And by the end of the movie, you realize all these actors that you've been watching are just versions of his personality. Now, you know, did they ask him much about this? No. Um, he said at one time he's, uh, you know, he's admitted it. He'll be a spokesperson for mental health. Uh, but he just got over it. You don't get over that. And, and. I wonder, I wonder what his pronouns are. I mean, should we refer to him as them and they? Um, or he? 
There was also this controversy about a woman who came forward, one of the several women with whom he has fathered children. Some of them he kept secret. He kept saying, I'm the most transparent uh, person uh, you could because I wrote a book. But he had all these sons and uh, he never revealed it. And, uh, and I don't know whether even now he has four or five because this new one that came out, did is she one of the other four or is this the fifth? And she has a canceled check. She says that he sent her to get an abortion. She has the receipt from the abortion clinic. She has a get well card that he sent her. And the, the moderator, a guy named Buck Lanford, who's the sportscaster for a Fox station in Georgia, that's the person you need to do a political interview. Um, he said, well, what are the circumstances behind this? And Walker just said, it's a lie. That's that's the answer. It's a lie. Um, is the guy fit? I, I don't know. Is he fit, fit to be in Congress? Uh I mean, they could have asked him or given him that famous test and asked him to repeat person, woman, man, camera, TV. I mean, that, that proves that your cognitive ability is together. Now, this is not the only case where cognitive ability is a political issue. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But, you know, everybody has to admit that the expectations were so low. Herschel Walker did not pull out a gun and put it at Reverend Walker's head as he did with his girlfriends and ex-wife. He did not start telling a story about a, a, a priapic bull and the four cows that he impregnated and the three more that he wanted to have something going on with. So uh, I would like everybody else. I was expecting some sort of outrageous meltdown and other than pulling out the badge uh, on the stage, which was against the rules of the debate um, to bring a prop on. And he kept saying, it's not a prop. It's real. It's real. I mean, you know, there were none of those uh, meltdowns that we all expected. So in that uh, case, the debate was a success for him. But he had an even better debate um, right after that on Sunday night because um, they had another debate scheduled and he didn't show up. So they had an empty podium, which was even more impressive than his performance. <laughs> it had low expectations, too. One thing you don't probably know is that according the the Walker campaign at first requested that if they were going to have a debate, they should have all the questions before the debate. Well, before that debate, they did get all the topics because that was in the contract that they signed. All the contracts would be revealed. Now, didn't Donna Brazil get in a lot of trouble for not giving Hillary Clinton the questions, but the topic? She said, they're going to say something about the death penalty. Oh, but for Herschel Walker, you know, that's okay before a debate. All right. So the other situation 
about cognitive ability was provoked by like one sentence that's been played over and over again and repeated over and over again. And it's from a, a, a very young and attractive um, NBC correspondent, fairly new to the game, um, who was assigned the interview with John Fetterman, uh, who had a stroke several months back. Now, he does have auditory problems processing what he hears in terms of words. So when he was interviewed, he does have a screen that prints it out. And, you know, I watched the whole interview. And with one exception where he said emphatic and then corrected himself and he meant empathic, he seemed perfectly fine to me and together. And others who have talked to him have said, no, there's not a problem, you know, with his thinking. There's a problem with his hearing, putting the words together when he hears something. But he can read perfectly well. And he is getting better. But this NBC reporter started the interview, at least in the broadcast, by saying this. Lester, in small talk before the interview, without captioning, it wasn't clear he was understanding our conversation. It wasn't in small talk before. First of all, this woman, I mean, she's certainly telegenic, but she has the most annoying voice. And small, before the interview, it's, I don't know whether it's nasal or in the back or whatever. I mean, I wouldn't. And Lester, in small talk before the interview without captioning, it wasn't clear he was understanding our conversation. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's hard to understand the way you speak. Maybe you should get some elocution lessons, placements, you know, for how you speak. But, um, you know, that's been a big controversy all week. And, uh, you know, just from that, you know, one statement. And we'll see what happens. These races are so close. Every every time I look at the internet, there's another race that's either one the, in Illinois. The poll came out and showed that uh, the Democrat, who is an admiral, was three points behind the Grassley, who is like 90 years old. And in in Oklahoma, a Democrat may be elected governor. And uh, Oz is catching up on Fetterman. And I mean. I mean, boy, this this could drive you crazy every day. And I've I've sort of created a list of candidates where I say, well, this person could win and this person with a little bit more help could win. And those are the people I send my money to. Unfortunately, here in Florida, it does seem like Val Demings is going to lose to Marco Rubio and Charlie Crist, who had a very little chance of beating um our uh, governor here, DeSantis, or Governor DeSantis, uh, you know, that too seems to be a, a, a lost cause. But I'll tell you this, once you donate money, I your text message box. Richard, can I talk to, Richard, sorry for bothering you. Richard, uh, would it be possible? Is there anything I can say that could get you to donate $25? Oh, every time I go to text messages and it goes, ding, ding, and I go to see who's sending me something. It's another politician asking for money. The other big story of the week was the January 6th committee. 
And uh, it was what many people assume is going to be their final um, convention. And boy, as far as I'm concerned, it was a knockout again. Every one of them has been revelatory and um, on the edge of your seat, gripping as you're watching it. There's always something. But in this particular one, the thing that struck me was that all these emails from the Secret Service that knew a violent attack on the Capitol was going to happen. I mean, God, there were so many of them. They've got guns. They're coming to attack the Capitol. They're saying they're going to do this. They're going to stop this. They're after the politicians. And I mean, I've heard some people say this should have been handled by DHS. Uh, And the DHS is, of course, under Trump's control and a Trump appointment. But they didn't do anything when they had these text messages and emails from late December. They got Tony Ornato is no longer. He quit the Secret Service after having this double job where he worked for the uh, for Trump in the White House, as well as working for the Secret Service. But man, they got to clean that place out. And that seemed obvious. So, uh, and then there was tape of, um, of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and other uh, senators and representatives who were hiding from the protesters, who said they were going to hang them, they were going to kill them, they were going to string them up. And it was riveting vivid, uh, video. It was taken by Nancy Pelosi's daughter. At one point, Nancy Pelosi said, the word is that Trump is 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 going to come to Congress, that he's leading the mob, which of course is what he wanted to do. She said, if he comes here, I'm going to punch him. Well, what is she, like four foot 11 and he's six foot two? If she punched him, she'd punch him right in the testicles, which might be more effective than anything else. Um, and of course, there's uh, criticisms of the January 6th uh, committee. Chris Christie on uh, Sunday with George Stephanopoulos had this criticism of the January 6th committee. I think the January 6th committee, despite some of the really good work they've done, and I agree with Julie on some of the bringing out of facts that they've done, was resigned to having a credibility problem because of the membership of the committee and the way that was done. And so there are lots of Republicans across this country who just say, there's nobody there to argue the other side. Kinzinger and Cheney don't argue the other side to the extent that there is some arguments there. Um, but there's no, what, there's no but other, yeah, what is side, the other side, side like, Chris? Hey, Look, I think, the, I think that you can question a lot of these witnesses who came up and, and test their credibility, Donna. Bill Barr? Well, you don't uh, test the credibility of the former listen, attorney general? You, you don't test the credibility you know of the people who were inside the, the Oval there, Office there are a lot advising people, the yeah. president? You're going to test the credibility? Donna, you just keep talking? Of, or you no, want no, me to seriously, you want me to Chris, give the answer? what is the other side? You, you, you can test the credibility of people, and by doing that, it can give them more credibility. But instead, they're ju- it's a TV production. Yeah, you're going to test the credibility the, of the cops no, no, who got their heads smashed no, in. No, Is that's, that, not, that's who you're no, going to that, test? No, that's not who I'm testing, Donna, but there are lots of people inside the White House who now have convenient memories about things that didn't have memories about them before. You can ask questions about that. But 
But <laughs> how do you know they didn't have memories of it before? They weren't questioned about it before. And the hypocrisy and the irony of this. Do you remember this guy? Former federal prosecutor. Do you remember the Republican National Convention that nominated Donald Trump in 2016? This guy was an actual for, former federal prosecutor who stood in front of a howling mob and held a kangaroo court putting Hillary Clinton on trial and led the audience. He didn't say it himself, but this, this, this screaming mob shouting, lock her up, lock her up. His jury of, of 5,000 people screaming, lock her up. Where was the other side there, Mr. Christie? And not only that, he convicted her of so many different crimes in front of this, uh, you know, uh, this Jacobin howling mob screaming for the blood of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of Queen Hillary. And in the f and Trump promised, I'm going to appoint a special prosecutor and we're going to get Hillary Clinton. No special prosecutor. He had four years to do it. Over the course of the Trump administration, what did you have, three or four different attorney generals? Each one of them could have prosecuted Hillary Clinton. Nothing. Hillary Clinton has never even received a parking ticket. And the ultimate irony, of course, is that Donald Trump is, is guilty of having top secret information that he was not authorized to have. She had it on her computer uh, server in Chappaqua. But this is Chris Christie. Chris Christie who created a kangaroo court with a howling mob out for blood, talking about how, well, they we have to hear the other side. And then there was Mike Smirkanish, an old friend of mine, but, uh, you know, Mike got the word at CNN that you have to be um, fair and balanced. So on his show, I used to watch a show every week. I thought he had the best show on CNN and possibly one of the best shows of all the the weekend news shows because he's bright and because he wasn't doctrinaire. But now his Sunday show, now that the word came down, you can't say the big lie anymore. And now that Don Lemon has been demoted and Brian Stelter has been fired and everybody's going, oh, what's going to happen to my job? All of a sudden, his guests are, you know, to talk about Fetterman, he had uh, a columnist from the New York Post. Um, a few weeks ago, he had the uh, pollster from the Trafalgar Group uh, to talk about how the Republicans were going to win everything and the other polls are wrong. He's had, I'd, I'd have to, you know, go through the list, but more and more, he's just bringing people on, even, even the emails that he takes during the show or the, the text messages seem to be more conservative. But anyway, he was on Bill Maher and he had something to say about the January 6th committee too. He had his criticism. This was it. 
mistake. Donald Trump should have been the first witness subpoenaed, not the last witness subpoenaed. I don't think he'll ever testify. And I don't, I don't say that for an applause line. I say it because he's going to run out the clock. Republicans probably will take control of the House of Representatives, and this investigation is going to go away. What were they applauding? That is such a stupid idea. Of course, this is not a trial, but even in a trial, you don't put the defendant on first in a trial. Not only that, until they do their investigation and they uncover the facts and testimony reveals what was going on, how do you even know what to ask him? Now, Mike knows as well as I do, if you had subpoenaed him in the beginning, he still wouldn't show up. And he won't show up now. And the Department of Justice has refused to issue subpoenas for Mark Meadows and some of the other people who were in the White House. They wouldn't be... Um, um, issuing, and I'm sorry, indictment, not a subpoena. They wouldn't be indicting Donald Trump for not coming before the committee. That's uh, that, that's just ridiculous. It's just a way to, um, I don't know, to stir up controversy. I think the January 6th committee has done a stellar job. And I've seen every every one of their sessions from beginning to end. All right. Now, I spend some time on conservative websites, and I spend some time on conservative message boards, and I spend some time talking to people. And there are a lot of things, you know, people always say, well, you know, there's so many Americans that believe that the last election was rigged. They'll say things like, oh, Joe Biden is president, but they won't say that he was elected president in a legitimate election. That's what they won't say. But there's so many other things that are common knowledge. Everyone knows that are really uncommon knowledge. That's what I'm going to tell you about right now. Uncommon knowledge. All right. So I'm on a radio show in New York, a friend of mine, and we're talking about the threat of nuclear war. That's another thing. They went they went hog wild criticizing uh, Joe Biden for saying that we're closer to Armageddon than at any time uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, and people say, oh, he used the word Armageddon. Well, isn't everybody saying that? Yes that we don't know what Putin will do and that we are, we can't say yes or no whether he will use nuclear weapons or not. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons if he uses them there. Okay. So I'm on a radio show and the host says something that I've heard over and over again. Russia has the second most number of nuclear weapons. I've heard newscasters on TV say that. Well, after the United States, they're number two. No, it's time for uncommon knowledge. Russia is number one. Russia more, has more nuclear weapons than the United States. Uh, they have um, over 6,000, a couple of hundred into 6,000. We have mm, five and a half. 
half thousand. China. China has 350, which I think points out how many do you actually need? Um, other countries, uh, uh, United Kingdom has 220, Pakistan and India are pretty evenly matched with uh, 150, 160. Israel has 90. All right. But no, we're number two. So what? Well, the, the, the idea is that I hear it over and over again, and it's not true. Here's another one. Why does the United States have open borders? Open borders. Do you know that in 2021, we turned back immediately over 1 million people. We turned back even now over 100,000 a month. We're on track to turn back over 1 million people and send them back to Mexico right when they get to the border. Does that sound like an open border to you? The next time somebody says that to you, tell them we don't have open borders. We've never had, well, we have had open borders, but 100 years ago. And we don't have them under Joe Biden. The other one is... We've got to drill for more oil. We've got to be energy independent. Well, if energy independent means we don't import oil, well, that hasn't been true since 1940. If it means we export more energy than we import, uh, we've been energy independent for a couple of years and we're still energy independent. We remain energy independent today. We, we, uh, we export more energy than we import. And here's another one. You know, people generally think Saudi Arabia is the number one producer of oil in the world. <clears throat> no, the United States is number one in oil production, not Saudi Arabia. And then people say, well, you know, under Trump, we drilled so much oil. Well, we had 11.3 million barrels per day in 2020. We have 11.7 million barrels per day in 2022. And next year, the United States will produce more oil than any year in the history of our country, 12.4 million barrels will be produced. And this is not an estimate from, you know, some democratic source. It's from the oil industry. 12.4 million barrels of oil per day will be produced in 2023. As opposed to 11.3 million barrels per day in 2020. Now, there was an estimate, uh, you know, earlier in the year that we'd produce even more than that, 12.7 million, but 12.3, that's a historic record for oil production. We're going to be breaking records. And here's one more thing where people say, well, the Republicans just want to drill. Well, some of them do, and some of them say drill, but not in my backyard. Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, the two senators from Florida, 
have a piece of legislation where they want a permanent a permanent um, end to any exploratory, not an end, a prohibition on any exploratory wells in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, on off the west coast of Florida, far out. You know, they don't want to look at these oil wells all the way out. I, I lived in California and uh, I went to the University of California at Santa Barbara. And, you know, we had a really beautiful beach there which also had an oil spill at times. I mean, it, the thing that I remember most about attending that college was that the smell in the morning of eucalyptus and oil spill. But we still had, we were pumping oil in California. We were pumping oil off the coast of Santa Barbara and on this beautiful beach, you could see the rigs out there. All right, enough about the news. This week, I had a friend take me to a comedy showcase, and uh, most of it was pretty mad, but there was one guy, here he is, his name is Philly Plowder. Philly Plowder was a comedian. All right, now when he started the show, he's one of these guys that comes out and does his riff on the audience, right? So he's saying, oh, this guy, look over here, he looks like uh, his wife dragged him here and he's not too happy to be here. And he comes to my table and he sees me with my glasses and he points to me and says, oh, look down here. There's Elton John with his husband. <laughs> so anyway, he, he was really funny. Very, very, very gifted comedian. And halfway through his set, he looks down and he goes, you look like Richard Bay. You're Richard Bay, aren't you? You're Richard Bay. And I said... Yeah, I'm Richard Bay. He goes, oh, my God. And he, he was very complimentary. And he said, you're the man and blah, blah, blah. He said, what are you doing now? And I said, it's a long story. And he said, oh, you're just chilling, man. Right, right. So anyway, it uh, it pointed out to me once again, you know, I started out as an actor. And being an actor, it's an ephemeral uh, creation. I mean, we remember Shakespeare for 400 years. Who remembers Richard Burge Burbage, who played Hamlet? I mean, you ask people about the, the great figures of the stage uh, from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Nobody knows who they are. Um, we, have, we know Cyrano de Bergerac. How many people remember Walter Hamden, who was the American, the great American Cyrano? And so many others. So television is like that, too. How many Americans remember Arthur Godfrey, um, Dave Garraway? Uh, oh, who were some of the others? Uh, Jack Parr. I bet you some of the young people, they don't even know who Johnny Carson was. So, you know, when you're on television and it's over, it's as ephemeral as being an actor in the theater. I mean, you still have your tapes. <laughs> But you don't sit at home watching your old shows, you know. So, so somebody recognizes you, and yeah, it feels good. They remembered what you did. They enjoyed it. They're complimentary. Now, in New York, we had someone who broke all records for the longest-running talk show, and he happened to be a personal friend of mine. Every time I'd see him, he'd go, Richard? To make it in this business, 
You have to have sincerity. And once you fake it, you've got it made. Say the same thing over every time, like it was the first time he thought of the joke. I was in an off-Broadway play, and he actually came to see it twice. And I went to the stage manager and I said, oh my God, I can't believe Joe came to see my play. He liked it so much. He came back and saw it twice. The stage manager said, yeah, he slept through it both times. I was looking at him out in the audience. Well, uh, on my first job in television, I, um, I got to spend some time with Joe Franklin. That's where I first met him. And this was on WCBS 1981 or 82, somewhere around there. And if any of you watching remember Joe Franklin, I mean, I think you'll get a kick out of seeing this piece. This may look like the home of a bedraggled bag lady, but it's really the executive office of a man who this month is celebrating his 30th year in broadcasting. To some, he's a cult figure. To others, He's a little bit corny, but if you're a television insomniac, you know he's just Joe Franklin. Joe Franklin holds the world's record for the longest running talk show in the history of television. I think the reason I've endured is because uh, I don't take this business seriously. I know that if I'm wined and dined and romanced, which I am, it's not me. They want the microphone, they want the camera, they want the plug. Okay, let me say good morning, whether it's about 6 o'clock in the morning or about 2 o'clock in the morning, we're going to give you what I think is going to be a fascinating kind of a show. And uh, to make it kind of a fascinating day for me, I'm just going to tell you in a very low-key fashion that today marks my 30th anniversary in TV. So let's hear it for me, okay? <laughs> How I become a cult figure, I think it's uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, I'm still there. The headquarters for Joe Franklin's TV empire is located in New York's Times Square, where Joe keeps his rather cluttered executive office. Okay. So what day does the maid come in, Joe? Well, we had her last time about 1903, I think. It, it really looks like it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, at least I, I know the order of my disorder. I get Joe's office may be a mess, but out of this disarray has come an impressive array of stars. According to Joe, he gave the first-ever TV exposure to stars like Liza Minnelli and Barbara Streisand. But where are those stars today, Joe? Most don't come back, because I symbolize to most... I didn't mean to get this heavy, but I, I, I epitomize to most the time when they were down. When they were down. And when they see me, I represent the time when they were down and out, so when they see me, they run away. Most do not come back, but Barbara Streisand is one of maybe three or four who do come back, because she's nice. And his favorite guest of all time, was Bing Crosby. First you put your two knees close up tight, and then you wiggle to the left, and then you wiggle to the right. Where the blue, where the we did a whole hour. And when he walked toward me, I just, uh, I just melted. You know, I always thought of Bing as being mechanically reproduced. He was my idol, except for Bing Crosby, except for Eddie Cantor. Nostalgia and stars of the past are Joe Franklin's specialty. His show was once called Joe Franklin's Memory Lane, and today he sees his extensive collection of memorabilia as a comfort. It's a lonely business. I have no friends. I don't have one single friend. My friends are uh, the old records and the old movies. I go home at night and turn on the projector, and uh, with me, it's always 1934. And how does Joe Franklin want to be remembered? 
as somebody who looked into the back alleys, not just on Broadway, for the same six or eight stars that you get tired of interviewing and uh, somebody who was nice. I always said, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. sit down in front of the TV set and watch Joe Franklin. You know, he's been on for 30 years this year. 30 years? Do you think we'll be on in 30 years, you and I, doing two in the town? I'll be doing two in the town in 30 years, Richard. I don't know about you. <laughs> That'll be the year 2012. It's a long way off. But we'll be right back. And, of course, I wasn't doing two in the town. I only did it for one year. That, that little... Media Machiavelli, she married one of the newscasters on the station, and the two of them went to management and said, let's do it as a couple. And they got bounced. So, But uh, I bounced to better places. I, I went to Philadelphia for four years and came back to Channel 9 for another 10 years, then landed on talk radio. Actually, uh, I worked in broadcasting until 2009. So... I was a little short of those 30 years. I guess it was 27 years, uh, if you include talk radio. Now, when Joe Franklin died, I had the honor of uh, delivering one of the eulogies at his memorial service, along with Curtis Lewa, who was also there, uh, at a synagogue in, uh, in Hell's Kitchen. So uh, Joe Franklin was a nice guy. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you will subscribe. I hope you will share this with your friends. I hope you enjoyed it most of all. And um, I hope we'll all be back here again next week for another edition of Richard Bay Talk. In the meantime, all my best. Take care. <laughs> 